there's that moment of anticipation as we wait to see if everything connects. And it does. And we welcome everyone joining us for our live stream. It's only one part of our service, so be part of the whole thing. Send us an email or come see us in person. Uh, let's go to Psalm 91. We've got three passages we're going to read. Psalm 91, and then uh, Matthew chapter 24, and uh, finally in James. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so very much for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord God, that you'd speak to us today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I could bring your word to your people, boldly and faithfully, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes, that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your, the, the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And then to Matthew chapter 24. There we'll start with uh, verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. 
And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then in James chapter 1, first 15 verses, and then we'll skip over into 5 for two verses. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Then skipping over to chapter 5, just verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who blessed who remained steadfast. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Quite a number of years ago, I was at a conference in uh, Kansas City uh, in the United States. And uh, at the time, there were five uh, speakers on the platform there in Kansas City, uh, all of whom I, rem I admired greatly. They all had significant ministries. They all were doing significant things, I thought, for the Lord. Uh, they were well-known and very, very highly respected uh, across the United States. And I was looking at them and, you know, just thinking, wow, I really wish I could get to know these guys, you know, uh, maybe rub shoulders with them a little bit, get to understand, see things from their perspective and all of that. And then I heard the Lord speak to me. And the Lord said something like this. He said, Rod, unless you stop looking up to these guys, I cannot use you. That was really striking to me. Unless you stop looking up to these guys, I can't use you. 
And I thought, what in the world? So I repented, said, okay, Lord, I won't. I'd still like to get to know them, but uh, I understand what you're saying. You know, they're just normal people, normal men, just like any other normal person. It's interesting reflecting on that now, uh, probably 20 or so years later, that none of those men anymore are in the public eye. Uh, several of them have actually fallen quite considerably because of sin, uh, and others have just fallen out of the limelight, fallen out of the spotlight, and you don't really hear from them anymore, and they certainly don't have the same level of influence that they once had. And I just think about that and how we're living in a time where we're seeing this happen all around us. There's a, quite a few people that are just falling out, you know, out of the limelight, but there's quite a few more people that just seem to be falling away. All the time, almost uh, every month, you hear about another leader uh, who the leader or a member of the family has fallen. Uh, and, and you think, what is going on here? And we're even surrounded, it's not even by leaders, but by normal people, people like us, normal Christians, who once seemed so strong in the Lord, who seemed to be running the race, and all of a sudden they're gone. Or all of a sudden they embrace some lifestyle or sinful attitude that becomes destructive for them. And you think, what in the world is happening what is going on? And what is going on is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. That many people were going to fall away. And we live in challenging times. Now, I know that people will say, well, all times have been challenging, right? And every time does have its challenges. But as somebody who's lived most of their life at this stage, I can tell you that it was not ever as it was as it is right now that things have changed, and I believe, certainly in the United Kingdom, and certainly in the United States, that it's much more difficult to live for Jesus today than it was 50 years ago, maybe even 20 or 25 years ago. And so we as Christians, if we are going to survive, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to be fruitful and even be faithful, we must become what the Bible calls steadfast. Steadfast. And we must become steadfast and remain steadfast in our lives. It is a matter of life and death. As the Proverbs say, Proverbs eleven nineteen, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live but he who pursues evil will die. The Bible sees this as a life and death thing, and I see it as a life and death thing. I've seen so many Christians fall away, walk away, or simply didn't prepare themselves with steadfastness and end up losing it, losing all the things that God had promised them. Well, what's steadfast? What does it mean to be steadfast? Steadfast is being constant and consistent in your Christian character and convictions. Hope you like all those C's. Constant and consistent in your Christian character and convictions. 
not wavering, not going back and forth. Now, we all grow, right? So it's not like we all just want to stay where we are when we're constant and consistent. We want to be consistent in growth, too. And we all can grow, but we need to consolidate that growth as well. Being constant and con consistent in our Christian character and convictions and consolidating our growth as we go along. It's resolutely maintaining your godly attitudes and your godly aims, especially during times of distress and difficulty. You fulfill your duty as a Christian with unshakable determination. When you're steadfast, it means you don't change uh, quickly and you don't change unexpectedly. A steadfast, steadfast person is not here today and gone tomorrow. A steadfast husband, for example, doesn't say to his wife on Tuesday, I love you dearly, and on Wednesday, oh, I'm going to move in with my mistress, and on Thursday, oh, I love you dearly. You remain steadfast, and you remain steadfast no matter what else is going on around you. You remain steadfast no matter how other people behave. You remain steadfast despite your circumstances. You hang in there. It's a personal character quality, and it's a mental attitude that leads to your perseverance in living for Jesus. If you have steadfastness, it enables you to continue your course of action without regard to discouragement, opposition, or previous failure in your life. Now, you want an example for steadfastness? I'll give you the best example, I think, probably of steadfastness in modern literature. The Terminator. I don't know if you've ever seen the films. I can't recommend them because of the content. But you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, The Terminator. I'll be back. And the interesting thing in that film is just how no matter what you threw at The Terminator, he just kept coming. He wouldn't quit. He wouldn't stop. He had a message. He had, he, he had, he had a, 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 a mission. And nothing was going to take him off that mission until he was totally destroyed, which thankfully, in the case of the Dominator, they were able to do. Now, if you want a more positive Christian example, you can think of somebody like Martin Luther, one of the founders of the Reformation in the 1500s. When he was attacked and criticized and called before the Roman Catholic authorities because of his beliefs, he was there and they criticized him and they, they put him uh, on trial and he gave his testimony. He says, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. That's the attitude of someone who's going to be steadfast, steadfast. And as Christians, we can, we must become and remain steadfast in following Jesus, steadfast in our faith. It's essential for our fruitfulness and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. So how do we become steadfast? And how do we remain steadfast? Well, I've got a few things, obviously, some suggestions here. Number one, and it's kind of where we start all the time, you have to have faith in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God alone. You have to have faith in God and God alone. 
If you have faith in God and another person, you won't remain steadfast. If you have faith in God and the church, you definitely won't remain steadfast. If you have faith in God and the minister, you won't remain steadfast. You have to have faith in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God alone. And you can do that because God is steadfast himself. Hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. We have faith in God because God himself is steadfast. He does not change. He does not lie. He will not change his mind about you. The God who called you loves you and will see you through whatever you're going through. And we have faith in God because God not only is steadfast, God is also our deliverer if we trust in him. If we trust in him. That's Psalm 91. That's the message. I love this. This is one of the strongest things that came into my mind when I was thinking through the scriptures for what God wanted to say. Though a thousand fall at my side or 10,000 at my right hand, I'm going to keep going. That's an attitude of steadfastness. I don't care who falls away. I, I will hope that you all are here next Sunday, but even if you weren't, I'll preach the word because that's what I'm made to do. We're going to be steadfast and doing what God wants, even if it's one or two of us. We got to keep steadfast. We will see the recompense of the, Lord, uh, of the wicked given by the Lord. God will protect us from evil and he will command his angels concerning us, especially when we're engaged in spiritual warfare. So that's how we can have faith in God. Not only that, God has given and is giving us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And one day he's coming again. And that's why we can have faith in God. But as long as Jesus, as, only as long as Jesus is your Lord. Unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this stuff doesn't apply to you. Jesus has to be your Lord, and Jesus is a jealous Lord. He doesn't take two or three. He wants to be the one, the one in our lives. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means he has given and continues to give us the victory in Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So in order to be steadfast, we have to have faith in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus Christ has done and dying on the cross for us so we could have forgiveness and rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. And we know that we've got the victory. That's the guarantee. The empty tomb is the guarantee of our victory and is worthy of our faith. 
Secondly, we need to embrace, embrace the testing of our faith and refuse to quit. If you're a Christian, your faith will be tested. It will be tested. When I hear of a leader that's, that's fallen into sin, it tests my faith. When I hear someone challenge whether God is real, it tests my faith. When people criticize me for my attitudes or for following the Bible, it's a test. We are going to face tests of our faith. And we need to refuse to quit. If you don't embrace the testing of your faith, you will not be steadfast. Because it's that testing of your faith that actually produces the steadfastness. You embrace the testing of your faith even when all you want to do is run away. And I've been there many times. Many times. When I just would just run, run away. But James says, count it all joy when you face these tests. When you face these trials. Because you know it's testing your faith. And the testing of your faith produces steadfast. And steadfastness completes you. It has an effect in your life that makes you stronger. The more steadfast you are, the stronger you will become in the Lord. But you've got to embrace that testing of your faith. The third thing, it's another thing that James suggests for us here, is that we need to ask confidently for wisdom about how to live our lives as a follower of Jesus. And James, this is all a part of the steadfastness talk. And frankly, you know, living today is hard. We need wisdom. We need to know how do we approach that boss of ours who's persecuting us or mistreating us? How do I deal with that situation? How do I deal with a disagreement with my spouse or my very good friend? What do I do? How do I address this problem, this problem behavior? You need wisdom, especially when your faith is being tested when you're being challenged, and so just ask God. And God will give you wisdom. But you have to believe that God's going to give it to you. A lot of times we pray and we don't really expect God to answer. We just say a prayer. In this case, you need to expect that God will give it to you. You need to expect it as a daily relational dynamic from the Lord. And you have to ask without doubting that God wants the best for you. There are a lot of people who don't believe that God really wants the best for them. And so they think, well, I'd like to follow Jesus, but, you know, Jesus might make me marry somebody I don't like. Or Jesus might give me a job that I don't want to do. Or Jesus might call me to go someplace that I don't want to go. And sometimes that's the true. But in the end, it works out for the best. God wants the best for you. And if you'll trust him, he'll bring the best. And you have to trust that God's way is the best way. Otherwise, you'll be double-minded and unstable. I know many couples who, they move in together before they get married. They say, well, we know that God doesn't want us to live together outside of marriage. But at the same time, we need to test it out a little bit. And so we just don't trust that God's way is really the best way. And you got to trust that God's way is the best way. And follow that. 
So you ask God confidently for wisdom. Then the next thing, this is number four, if you're following along. Number four, uh, and this comes from verses nine and 10 in this passage here. And I express it like this. You need to see yourself and your life through God's eyes, not the world's eyes. You need to see yourself through God's eyes and not the world's eyes. James says, hey, let the poor exult, uh, uh, rejoice in his exaltation and let the rich mourn their humiliation. Now that's opposite of what we think. We often think of the rich as blessed and the poor as not blessed and you know what's going on here. And it's, we have a short life. And if you look at your life through the world's eyes, you will almost always be disappointed with your life. Almost always. And I know that. You know, I've experienced that in my own life. If I look at my career, my life, and things through the world's eyes, I'd say, oh, wow, kind of wasted myself. But if I look at myself through God's eyes, it's not a waste because I'm doing what God wants me to do because I believe that God's way is the best way and that he wants the best for me. So we have to look at ourselves. If you're looking yourself through the world's eyes, you will struggle to remain steadfast. So you got to look at yourself through God's eyes. Number five, if you're following along, you need to be inspired by the examples of others who remained steadfast. Those are the examples. One time a few years ago, I was asked, in a church up in, uh, in Scotland, uh, we were talking and they asked, they said, you know, who, who are your heroes in the faith? And I said, well, uh, uh, Murdo and, uh, oh gosh, uh, Willie, thank you, Karen. I said, Murdo and Willie, who were two men in that church, both had served faithfully for more than 25, 30 years as ministers, and they retired, and they were still serving the Lord. I said, these guys are my heroes. They were expecting me to say someone like John Calvin, you know, or uh, any number of great preachers, but these were the guys, because these were the guys that were steadfast. And I see God's blessing on their lives now that they're in their retirement years. I see what God continues to do, and I want that. I want that. I don't want the fleeting popularity of one of those five guys that stood on the platform all those 20 years ago. I want the consistency and steadfastness that enables God to do great things. That's what we want. And so we need to look at that and be inspired by those kinds of people. Again, don't focus on those that have fallen. Though a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to remain steadfast. Number six, we need to remember the benefits of steadfastness. It has many, many benefits. It will have a positive effect on you so that you lack nothing, James says. When you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life according to God's promise. Your steadfastness shows God's love for you and your love for God. It's proof. It's evidence. Steadfastness also exposes your heart 
as you're tested. And this is a big one. When you're tested and you're steadfast, it shows you what's there. And sometimes you don't like what's there. And that's what James is saying. You know, when you're tested, it's not because of God. Don't blame God for it. You're tested because of what's in your heart. And your testing shows what's in your heart. So let it show what's in your heart and then deal with that before the Lord. Steadfastness also reveals God's purpose in your life. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful toward you. In chapter 5, verse 11. And, and I, I struggled on how to phrase this, but it's very important. Steadfastness releases God's deliverance in your life. Now, in a sense, we don't control God. So never, ever, ever hear me saying that we control God and never, ever, ever hear me saying that we have this kind of transactional relationship with God where if we do this for God, God does this for us. But as James said, the person who's double-minded, the person who's unstable in all his ways, that person's not going to receive anything. That person won't receive it. And notice what it says here in Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love. That's steadfastness. Because of his steadfastness, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's the promise of God as we remain steadfast. And I've seen it time after time after time after time. Now, thanks be to God, God enables us to do this if we cooperate with him because his grace is upon us his Holy Spirit is within us. He's released us from the power of sin, death, and hell in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus and follow Jesus as Lord, this is God's gift for us. But this is the promise. And number seven, the last one here. Remember, if you're going to remain steadfast, you have to remember many, many people will not remain steadfast. You may be in the minority, not the majority, when it comes to Christians. I'm not even talking about non-Christians here. Many people won't. Just what Jesus said. He said, many will fall away. Many will betray one another. Many will hate one another. False prophets will arise and lead people astray. The love of many will grow cold because of their lawlessness, their lack of personal discipline, and their refusal to do God's explicit will. This is going to happen. But steadfastness will show you your promise of your salvation because, as Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. But no matter whether you're steadfast or not, the gospel will be proclaimed in all the nations. So let's be steadfast and be part of God's kingdom advance. About a month or so ago, we were up at Liverpool Street Station and we were walking through Liverpool Street Station 
And lo and behold, we start to hear music, live music playing. It sounds like a brass band. It's a Salvation Army band. And they were there and they were playing Christmas carols. Uh, and it really just made me reflect a little bit on William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He founded the Salvation Army around 1877. And, uh, and he and the Salvation Army members, they were zealous in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were zealous in calling people to repent of their sin and turn and follow Jesus Christ. And they also ministered consistently and compassionately to the material needs of people. They were looking after the material needs and the moral needs, especially of those who were the less privileged of society. And their ministry, even in the day, was helping tens of thousands of people. But interesting, what we often don't think about is that Booth was initially assaulted in the press by government and religious leaders alike. People really, really did not like him. They attacked not only Booth's unique evangelistic methods, which were a little strange in the day, taking the gospel to the streets. Who would do that? Holy cow. But also uh, his bold notions about how to bring moral and social reform. They didn't like it at all. Professor Thomas Huxley, uh, a biologist and an agnostic who was really prominent in advancing Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, he wrote 12 letters blasting Booth in the London Times. He viewed Booth's sway over his followers as being the prostitution of the mind, quote unquote, and a worse evil than prostitution or alcoholism. He characterized Booth's campaign to make people sober and hardworking as nothing more than a ruse to herd washed, shorn, and, and uh, uh, flocked sheep into his narrow theological fold. Another newspaper accused Booth of being a sensual, dishonest, sanctimonious, and hypocritical scoundrel, brazen-faced charlatan, uh, a pious rogue, a tub-thumper, and a masquerading, uh, masquerading hypocrite. That's, that's good, you know. Isn't it wonderful when people say that about you? And of course, that was Huxley and, and others. But even the Earl of Shaftesbury, one of the prominent evangelical leaders uh, in the Church of England and a, and a big social reformer, he announced after much study that he was convinced the Salvation Army was clearly Antichrist. In fact, one of the Earl's admirers then revealed that in his own studies, he had learned that the number of William Booth's name added up to 666. So clearly, he was the Antichrist. When Booth's son, uh, his oldest son, showed him such a newspaper attacks, apparently the Salvation Army General, William Booth, he replied, Bramwell, 50 years hence, it will matter very little indeed how these people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. And now... Booth and the Salvation Army went right on, actively leading people to Christ, ministering to the material needs of individuals, and promoting social and moral reform, all despite this opposition. Booth remained steadfast 
And it's his steadfastness that we remember today, not his critics. It's his steadfastness that we remember today that led to the effectiveness of his ministry, not those that would attack him and try to undermine him. You know what? We may not have Booth's ministry ourselves, but we can have Booth's steadfastness. You can, right now, by following these things, going to the Lord, say, Lord, make me steadfast. Because I guarantee you, God will use everyone who remains steadfast in Jesus Christ. And you will change the world in ways that you cannot imagine right now. You will change the world in ways that you may not ever even see on this side of heaven. But your life will make a difference before the Lord as you remain steadfast in him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you, we honor you, and we thank you for the example of people like William Booth, like Martin Luther, and many, many others who have remained steadfast. I thank you for the example of people like Murdo and Willie, the ministers, who remain steadfast in serving you. And there are countless others. I thank you, Lord God, for the elders that I've known who have remained steadfast in serving you, the church members I've known who have remained steadfast in serving you, the people even in this room who have remained steadfast in serving you. Lord, help us all become and remain steadfast. Help us have that constant, unchanging character and conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ that we will run the race that you set before us no matter the opposition we face, that we will continue in the faith until we draw our last breath, no matter if people go with us, people oppose us, or people come along. Help us to embrace that steadfast by your grace because it's your grace that makes it alive in us. It's the power of your Holy Spirit working inside of us that builds the steadfastness in us. And it's the victory of Jesus Christ and dying on the cross and rising from the dead through faith in Jesus that gives us the victory, that enables us to continue walking steadfastly before you and alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if a thousand fall at our side and 10,000 our right hand, let us be steadfast. Even if our fondest leader falls away, let us be steadfast. Even if the people around us and our best and dearest friends stop following, let us be steadfast. All for the glory and honor of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you are steadfast. Father, thank you that you are steadfast. Spirit, thank you that you are steadfast. Fill us now by your grace with that same steadfastness that we might bring you glory and honor and experience all that you have for us personally and corporately.
We love you and praise you. And we pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.